Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Early Education Show, the final episode for 2016. It's the season finale. It's exciting. Yay! Yes! I think that means like a hurricane or something is going to come through the podcast at the end of the episode and we'll be left wondering until February who survived and who didn't. It's a bit exciting. <laughs> I, I don't know that we've planned this cliffhanger, have we? But I know. Gosh, we'll have, we'll, to, have, we'll have to think on our feet. We'll come up with one. Well, I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. So it's great to be back with you. Yes, this is our last episode of the year, but um, as we sort of said last year, we're having way too much fun getting in front of microphones and ranting about early childhood every week. So we'll be back in about February, uh, but our last episode is going to be, uh, we're going to do probably three separate things. So we're going to do a bit of a year in review. So each of us are going to say, what was the one sort of issue or story or event or whatever that was sort of the key standout of 2016 for us in early childhood? Then we're going to just sort of quickly again go around the table and say, what are we sort of anticipating is going to be maybe the big story of 2017 or what are we looking forward to in 2017? And then um, a big thanks to all our listeners who have sent in questions. We're going to go through about five or six uh, questions that have been sent through to us and we'll sort of whip around and go through those. But we will, even though it's the festive season and we're, we're heading towards, you know, wrapping this up for the year, we're going to try and stay on track as best as possible. And we're going to continue with our regular first feature, which is the news of the week, which is, I think, coming from you this week, Lisa. What are you bringing us? What are you bringing us for the last time this year? <laughs> what am I bringing you? I'm bringing you two related stories, right? So instead of having one news of the week, I've actually had two news of the week, but they're very related. And it relates a bit to the discussion that we had with Carl Hessian, Hessian a few weeks ago about um, corporate and private equity providers. And the two related stories is that, that Bain Capital Private Equity, who's one of the biggest private equity firms um, in the world, interestingly started by Mitt Romney a few years ago, um, has bought out Campus Australia, now, for those of you that don't know, Camp Australia is our largest um, for-profit provider of out-of-school hours care services in Australia at the moment. Services are all over the place they've got. And um, I think they've got 600 different ones across the country. So in out-of-school hours care terms, it's fairly large. And they've been on the market for um, for a while, and um, uh, it's Bain Capital that's bought them out. So um, what's interesting about that is that Bain Capital also have bought out another provider in Australia, which is only about children, which is a provider of premium care, um, uh, a lot of which is, I think, in New South Wales. And that's a, a long day care business. So they now own two um, of our, you know, fairly large and important brands in New South Wales or in Australia, sorry. And they also own a, a childcare um, chain in uh, in America called Brighter Horizons and it's interesting um, just doing a comparison between that and the Australian ones. But... I just think it's um you know it's interesting that they've bought it out, but the related story, which is something quite um, huge, and it won't seem huge to those of us that aren't data nerds and nerds about this kind of stuff as I am, but the New South Wales Department of Education 
has banned certain providers from tendering for new out-of-school hours care services or existing ones um, because um, they've now got a policy that if people don't get, you know, to a certain level in um, the national quality standard, you know, process, rating process, and if services don't get to... Um, if they've got some bad, you know, like things, you know, any, um, if they've been prosecuted in the past three years or have been the subject of complaints to any regulatory authority in Australia, then they won't be able to bid for services. And so um, Bain Australia has just bought something, or Bain, sorry, Bain Private Equity has just bought something that, can no longer bid for um, the very services that it is providing in the largest state in New South Wales. So that's really interesting. And good on the New South Wales government for making that uh, part of um, the requirements for bidding yeah, on. Saying, that's a really good call. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that was that. I was kind of cheering when I heard that because I thought, oh, it's great to have some action on on this particular issue. So I was very, very happy to see that. So do we know? So this is this seems like a bit of a strange um, call for. I mean, I don't know a lot about Bain Capital or Bain Equity or whatever they are, but it seems like a strange business decision to buy up a large company like that that is not going to be able to, not going to be able to tender for contracts in New South Wales. Are they assuming they can turn it around? I assume. <laughs> yeah. They, look, what Bain does is um, take companies that are underpriced because of stuff like this. Um, get them up, you know, tart them up a bit and then float them on the stock exchange and make money out of it out of it in that way. So they'll be looking at the fact. I wouldn't be surprised if this hit the media two days before the sale was finalised because of, you know, um, if it was leaked to the media by Bain to actually affect the selling price. Because it did drop pretty were, substantially, didn't it, after yeah, they came out? Yeah, well, we don't actually we'll, – we'll never know what they paid for it, but, yeah. But, you know, it's interesting because um, Camp Australia um, claimed to look after 100,000 children every week. Now, if that company goes down, then a lot of businesses are going to find themselves without staff as they have to go home and look after their children. Yeah, because it is—it's huge, Camp Australia, isn't it? it? It has how many services does it have across Australia? Um, I, I thought it was six hundred, but I've just found another article that says seven hundred and twenty-four. Yeah, so it's massive. It's yeah. All right. Well, another one to keep an eye on. Um, but we will move on to so our first uh, sort of topic for the evening will be basically on a year interview. We've somehow made it to the end of another year. Um, a very strange and slightly terrifying year in terms of global politics and scary people being elected. But uh, it's also been obviously an interesting year in early childhood as well, not least obviously the launch of the Early Education Show is probably the most significant event, but uh, we probably we, we will have to discuss some other events as well. But Oh, um, really? I know, I know. Spoil all the fun. Now what uh, will I talk about? I wanted to do like a clip show or something. We, I thought we could just – we could – get that dreamy music and just talk about how much we've enjoyed talking to each other and then just cut to clips but um but that would be too much editing work for me so 
Uh, so we're we're just gonna we're gonna go around so one at a time and either pick you know an event, a story, an issue, or something that sort of you know was either the most important event of the year or sort of even you know summed up the year for us. So um, I think we might start with you, Leanne. What's your what are you gonna bring to the table? Well, I'm gonna take my inspiration actually from my um, reading recommendation last week, and I'm. I'm going to. Make, I'm sorry. It is going to take up a few things because there are eight parts to this, but I will speed through them fairly quickly. But I think the biggest success story of 2016 is actually political hubris and political management of messages and policies. To me, that is the absolute success story this year, and these are the reasons I think. And feel free to boo or um, cheer at this point. I think despite the Jobs for Families package not progressing and that it's not um, and that it's not universally agreed on because it actually isn't a very good package, the government still managed to convince everyone that they were spending $3 billion on children when they really weren't. Also, we've had no additional investment in not-for-profit services and any advocacy on this is portrayed as a left-wing conspiracy. Despite Aboriginal wellbeing being marginalised, we've seen services under threat that have done the most for um, Aboriginal communities, such as the Aboriginal Child and Family Services being kind of defunded or put to a market model. In our own state, that's uh, Lisa's and my state, admittedly this isn't yours, Liam, we've been convinced by the state that it's actually improving its commitment, yet it still funds at a lower level than um, the majority of the other states. Despite the evidence of the trends in the ratings in the NQF, we still say, oh, maybe it's the instrument that's putting these services at working towards. And maybe it's not really the management of those services or the leadership or the actual performance. I'm up to number seven, so you can relax, everybody. Um, and despite the despite the evidence that uh, educated quality makes the difference, we have managed to see the defunding of a huge professional development program. And, uh, oh, I did miss one, so I'm only up, actually up to number seven now. There has been no increase in educator pay or uh, early childhood teacher pay over the year. And despite what I reckon was about 5,000 articles that we all read on, uh, which showed international research that early childhood education is actually the thing that makes the difference in society, we still don't have it funded for free. And we still do not have children accessing early childhood programs at the levels that we should in this country. And yet, we still seem to be able to have this government saying that they're doing a lot of things for early childhood. So to me, that is the absolute success story for government this year. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the so the success story for me for, for the the media spin teams in the in the minister's office. Absolutely, because what has actually happened over the year for early childhood? A big fat nothing i'm just saying it's it's nothing i've never seen a year like it i honestly haven't where nothing has happened but there has been so much spin and an election as well like normally like that i think we forget there was an election this year i, I occasionally forget <laughs> and then and there, it was a, it was a reasonably like it probably wasn't as high on the agenda as i remember the 2013 one because i think there was a lot of you know, will they, won't they on the NQF? But it was, you know, everyone put out policy statements. It was at least a topic. And 
you're right, it's just been complete inertia. Yeah, that's. I, I just feel that we've been sold up the river. I really do. I just cannot see anything that has happened that has contributed to children's well-being this year. And I'm sure there'll be lots of people out there. I who am, I'm this. going to tell you you're wrong, let oh alone my, anyone else oh my, out there. Oh I've got goodness. something to tell you. <laughs> I, just, I actually can't believe this because this is usually around the other way. So I'm just, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be thrown. And I can't believe that it's only one thing, Lisa. It's got to be two. No, it'll just be one, just to make you even more confused. Liam, are you going next? Oh, I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna go follow oh, on from that. No, well, okay, yeah, I'll do my. That that, that was too good a segue, thing. Lisa. I can't. I can't go in between that. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll just tell a bit of a background story to this before I tell it what it is. Um, some of you might know that uh, Leanne and I worked together for a number of years in putting out various publications to the sector. And one of the things that we always used to enjoy doing at the end of December was we'd sit down and we'd write a newsletter and then put it ready to um, send on the 1st of January at midnight or, you know, the 31st of December at midnight or 12.01. And we, we wanted everyone to think that, you know, secretly we're working on New Year's Eve, but, you know, we had actually prepared it a little bit in advance and then uh, it set was, it ready. It was one go. of the only nights that we didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> anyway, so, so the one that we did at the beginning of uh, last year was we said from t we we headlined it and we said from today children in Australia will receive higher quality education and care. Do you remember that one, Leanne? I do, but I, I'm I'm at a loss to remember why. <laughs> I'll tell you why because new ratios came in in 2016 <gasps> oh, from the 1st of January. They did. So the ratios for children older than 24 months and younger than 36 months in New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia went to one to five. And there was other ratios that, you know, changed in various other states around, you know, different little things. But that was pretty major for those states because I know in New South Wales, I think we had one to eight before then, wasn't it, Leanne, in New South yes. Wales? We did have yeah. one to eight. But it was one to know, ten, I'm sorry. I'm going to be one to eight in uh, one to eight in New South Wales, I think. Oh, one to eight, yeah, you're right. Actually. Yeah, but I I'm going to be a pedant on this one, Lisa, because oh. I know I did play that game at midnight, but when was the law made that actually allowed this to happen? <laughs> oh, okay, just because it was done back in 2012, that doesn't mean anything. It right. happened. You're right. It was implemented. On service floors in 2016, <laughs> and and you know what? Two to three year olds thank thank the government for that. They nice. thank the government for that. And again, not yes, not not being not being New South Wales based, I seem to remember there was a fairly significant amount of advocacy from a certain peak group saying this would be disastrous for the sector and would be a, a huge problem in terms of skyrocketing fees and stuff. But I don't think that happened, did it? No, it didn't. Fees no, went up a little bit. But... Yeah, I, th I think we. I think that uh, was worked out that it was a very, a very small increase that actually was required because a lot of services had already moved to that. They'd started to move to it over time, and 
and it was just a yeah it was little a little blip on the screen but yeah. a big blip for those two to three year olds oh huge it was interesting some of the things that we said that ratios did which the first one we had for some reason was reduce the transmission of disease in education and care services <laughs> so better ratios less infection that's pretty huge isn't it it, wow. it is that's less that's less time off for those hard-working mums who childcare is provided for? <laughs> yes, because parent yeah. fathers don't need it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's actually no, Lisa. That's actually a really good point. That's actually because I remember um, in the ACT we've had the yeah we've had the one to five ratio for quite a while in the ACT. Just one of the many things we're far far ahead of New South Wales on. Um, but we, I and I remember in my previous role, I oversaw ACT centres and three regional New South Wales centres and the the race the toddler rooms were diabolical. I don't know how anyone continued to they they're just it one to you know, sixteen children and two educators, sixteen toddlers. I have a toddler at yeah. home and the one to one ratio yeah. isn't enough. <laughs> well I um there was someone I, I worked with many years ago and she'd had a group of two year olds. This was way, way back and she had a group of twenty two year olds that she had on her own. And mm. if she needed to go to the bathroom, she took all of them with her oh. to sit out to sit outside the um, outside the toilet because it was an outdoor toilet for staff. And she'd have them clap one to twenty, like each child would be numbered off one, two, three, so that she oh knew they were God. all there. Yeah, let's hope she didn't have constipation. Well, obviously, we're at toilet humour stage. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Oh, okay, dear. Liam, what's yours? All right. Well, I don't have a fun backstory or a list for mine, which I'm now feeling a bit left out on. But that's all right. I'm going to be fairly quick. So mine is going to be a big thing that I'm going to look at through the window of a specific event that I actually got to attend. So in uh, February, the Senate held an inquiry into the Jobs for Families package, and I got to go with a couple of my colleagues uh, to the public hearings and actually sit in the back of the fancy committee room and watch the various peak bodies and department heads and all the senators with their committee um, actually sort of wrangle and, and talk about the package. And um, look, and I think the, you know, the Jobs for Families package, in, you know, in terms of both its hideousness and its complete failure to, to move anywhere, um, is probably overall in it. It has to be the big story of 2016 for me. But I wanted to specifically talk about this public hearing because it was such a great microcosm of all the issues that have played out over the last, I mean, the last year, but even stretching back into 2015 when it was first sort of proposed by Scott Morrison and then re-proposed by Birmingham. Um, that so a couple of quick, you know, the specifics of things for me. The department's testimony. So there was about, oh, there must have been, so the, the head of the department, Jackie Wilson, had a cohort of about, I think there were eight of them all together. So the department, they were obviously pretty terrified, so they brought a huge gang with them. It's like when you, you know, you're, you're, you're lining up for a fight with someone, you want to make sure you've got all your toughest people with you. So it was these, this row of about eight, you know, suited and um, suited bureaucrats. And they were completely at a loss. They couldn't answer almost any of the questions. They were clearly 
terrified about the time frames that were being proposed, but obviously because the ministers uh, were not in the room with them, but will obviously be watching very closely, they're not allowed to say that. It was one of the more... <laughs> so I actually felt a little bit sad for them, and I very rarely feel sad for government bureaucrats. <laughs> but they were, they, they were and are in a very difficult position on this, uh, this, this reform package. Um, and then the other thing it is, it, it, the microcosm for me, and I don't want to get too specific with people, but the, the fracturing of the advocacy. So there were peak bodies from, um, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child and family centres. There were sort of family advocacy groups and there were early childhood sector groups. And the, the stark difference in opinion of where the sector was coming from was on big display and it's continued. And the willingness of people to tolerate what are appalling parts of this package and that are fundamental structural uh, problems, not little things that can be changed. The willingness of people to allow those because of a funding increase was on display in that room on that day and continues, unfortunately. So that, to me, was very, very early in the year, but I still remember that day very clearly. And I think it's, you know, like I said, a sort of good summary and microcosm of the issues still facing that package and our response to it. I think that's an interesting backstory. I think that's really you know, important because it shows how each of our, our politics are formed. You know, they're formed by situations like the one you went through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will say, you know, as we look at media reports these days of the, uh, today, I think that the, the there was plans to build a moat around Parliament House uh, that, and as fences are put up and we can't roll down the lovely green hills anymore, that... It is actually great. You can just sort of turn up and hear these sort of things being discussed, and yeah. um, that is still, while we still can, I assume everyone, you know, ordinary people will be locked out of Parliament House probably any day now. But um, while we can, to while we can still get over the drawbridge, it's very good that we can access that part <laughs> of our, why well, access that part of our democracy. Yeah, I agree with you, Liam, and I think it's great to engage in that in those those processes and have them, as you say, have them open. It's it's meaningful for everybody I think mm. when they do turn up at those things and it's interesting to see politics sort of played out in front of you as well how the sausage is made yes yeah. yes yeah um, and again and then sort of circling back to your point Leanne so that was February and nothing has happened since then you know reports were put out dissenting reports were put out you know we had an election and it's complete inertia it is it, you're, you're right it is the only thing I was going to disagree with you on Leanne is that you said that it was kind of You've never seen it like it this year. I'm going to say, except for the previous two or three years, it was probably exactly the same. <laughs> Lots of things being announced and proposed, but just abso- absolutely no action. Yeah, yeah. Look, you, you're right, and you, you could have gone boo hiss when I said that because mm. I did invite cheering or booing, but I, but I, I don't know. It still does feel like it's just been a year of of taking away rather than even even yeah. business as usual. Yeah. All right. Well, just, well, I wouldn't even well, say taking away as much as no traction, nothing happening. Yeah. And everyone apparently just sort of okay with that, which seems madness. Yeah. Children yeah. are growing old Well, nothing happens. Oh, and so are we. <laughs> Don't I know it? Don't make <laughs> us still be doing this podcast in ten us years, all government. In, you know, in ten years' time, still <laughs> complaining about the same things, <laughs> still whinging. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! All right. Well, speaking of uh, complaining and whinging, let's look ahead to 2017, shall we?
So we're going to um, same same format. We're probably going to go around one at a time. We can maybe go reverse order this time. So maybe I can go first. But we're okay, gonna... yeah, you go first. Let's go first. Is that just what so you can, you've got time to think of something, Lisa? Seventeen. <laughs> Don't give me away to everyone. <laughs> um, look, I think. Expect? I think the big thing for me and will um, is the NQF review is uh, nominally potentially going to come out at the end of in the next week or so, and we may get some clarity on what any changes to the regs and the standards might be. But it's probably more likely they'll be announced in next year. And regardless, that whatever the changes are, they'll be implemented next year. I think this is um, one. Because I think it's likely for me that the Jobs for Families package will continue to stall and actually won't pass. But this is a potential where we have a conservative government, we have conservative state governments as well. They could make some pretty drastic changes to the national quality framework. I hope they don't. But they, you know, the NQF review has been ongoing for about three years. Um, there have been consultations. There's been proposed changes. It's not out of the question. There could be a pretty significant. Uh, um, you know, drawing back of some of the some of the quality standards, particularly as the state governments will be feeling political pressure with some of their individual ratings, uh, but also that um, the uh, oh I lost my train of thought, but the um, the potential for the the time frame to be pushed back. So nominally, the national quality framework, you know, lock, stock, and barrel is meant to be in place by 2020. I think there'll be a lot of pressure from particular states to push that back. And while there may be some scope for that, and we should always you know, make sure we're being flexible. I don't. It shouldn't be being pushed back too much. So I think, you know, that it, what we sort of talked about a few episodes ago that the national quality. We think we forget how new the national quality framework is. That it's still in the rollout phase, and it's still potentially, you know, it could be drawn back or have bad bad people do bad things to it. Yes. Yes. What a what a succinct analysis, Lisa. Thank well, you. Okay, now we've just gotten into really depressed mode because yeah, what could they do to the NQF? Mm. They could really do nasty things. And I noticed that there's a lot of positioning in the media from the minister saying the states have to um, do better at, for example, um, uh, you know, checking. Uh, who they're approving as family daycare services. So he's making it very much a this is the state's responsibility and this is the Fed's responsibility rather than this is a shared, um, you know, concern. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Well, let's just cross our fingers. Yeah. Maybe they'll make it better. Let's be optimistic. Yeah. No, it's not going to happen. Um, all right. So, what, what was what was the order on the first one? I think it's over to you now, Lisa. You're still in the middle either way. <laughs> yeah, I'm always <laughs> the one in the middle. Um, okay. What do I think will happen in 2017? I actually think that the Jobs for Families package will get through um, <gasps> because with some yeah with some minor amendments because. Um, Turnbull has said that it's his second priority for um, uh, for next year. His heartland, you know, slightly richer people are getting more and more hit by the CCR cap. Um, so a lot of people have actually hit the cap now already, December, and they've got six months of very high childcare fees. And I think some of that will force him to make concessions to some of the 
crossbenchers, especially um, the Nick Xenophon party, and I think that it'll go through in some form or other. And I think that I'm always interested in how much of this comes from our elected politicians and how much of this comes from the department. And I think the department have been working on this for so long. They see their new computer system like a jewel in the crown just ahead of them. And they're not going to let go of that computer system. They're not going to let go of the Jobs for Families package. They might be forced to let go of, say, the um, changes to BBF-funded services, but they want that package to go ahead. And so I think that package will go ahead somehow. Well, yeah, and I, I agree, Lisa, because there's so many layers underneath that package that need to be in place for it to be successful. And um, it's, yes, you're absolutely right. Who'd have thought that a computer program would be the jewel in the crown? <laughs> <laughs> oh, a computer program plus a $30 a week um, uh, drop in fees for some families. Mm. Well, I think you know. Mm. I, I, I don't. I'm trying to think. I don't necessarily disagree with any of the specific points you made. Probably just the. I mean, the computer system, and um, so the essentially the new version of the CCMS system. I mean that. I would assume, and I don't know the ins and outs of it, but the system itself could be utilised in a vastly different package. So essentially, because I think the only really positive thing that the the drops of families package has taken from the Productivity Commission report is the streamlining of the subsidy system. So getting rid of the two, the CCB and the CCR, replacing it with the, I think it's the early learning subsidy, they're going to call it, and then paying that directly to services. I mean, that as a system is actually a, probably a good change. It could be used in a different a different package. I'm less optimistic. But they will have I... already written the specs for, you know, the, the throwing people off if they don't make the work activity test. Yeah, but that would that would be changeable. That might again would love to hear from people who um, who tell me I'm wrong. But again, you'll have to wait till February. But uh, the I think that that stuff around the edges is pretty simple and easy to change, and they would just presumably build it in so that that stuff could no. Well, I think they would. No, that the foundations of the system would be the big, the, you know, the big in terms of the payment system, how stuff's reported in. I'm less I'm less optimistic than you, Lisa, that the package will pass because I think. They they couldn't get it done in the Senate in the last um, in the last Parliament. The Senate now is is ten times crazier. What are they going to have to offer to get it through? I think it's one of because because of how so closely it's tied to parents and families. Liam, 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 look at the things they're offering and getting through, you know. Assault rifles are, are being offered, you know, as a, a reward, you know, or as a, you know an incentive to get certain packages through. Yeah, but only on stuff that's not... The... But but on stuff that's not hugely, you know, is, is burning a hole in anyone's, you know, sort of uh, issue of the day. So it's, you know, backpack attacks Liam, and ABCC. Who is, who is really complaining about the Jobs for Families package apart from the three of us? Well... Yep, there you go. Yeah. All right. Oh, so. oh God, you just you, you. All right, you've knocked me back in my chair a bit there, Lisa. You're right. I, yeah. Well, this is this is good. I mean, this is. I mean, let's let's get together this time next year and we'll see who's right. <laughs> well, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what's yours, Leanne? Oh, uh, well, I've I've resumed to my naturally optimistic self because it was gone. <laughs> the other stuff was actually like personal pain for me, and right. I'm going to be super quick. Next year, the government will announce 
as a result of really taking on board all of the research and all of the advocacy that has been done, they're going to announce free preschool, early childhood education, whatever you want to call it, for three to five uh, for all for all children by 2020. Wow. And pigs are flying out <laughs> my window as we speak. The clock's on. No, the clock's on and it's going to happen. It's going to happen because we will chain ourselves to um, something. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to go there. We're going to do it. We still can get in through that last week. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I actually think you're probably. I could probably argue the detail and the specifics, but you're probably not wrong. I think the political pressure on them is going to be pretty tough, particularly with all the education results stuff that comes out. The the it is now ridiculous the overwhelming body of evidence, but I think politically they'll want to take this out of Labor's sort of election chest so they want to be able to say we did this and they didn't because I think they they know they're vulnerable on some of this stuff and I think they'll actually want to I think out of pettiness I think they'll actually implement and you're right they'll they'll put it off a few years but they yeah well it'll be yeah it's out there so the clock's on from the beginning of 2017 so there's three years and everybody out there there's three years to just get active and and be really pushing for this to happen so you know, it's kind of like we could make history happen. This is me being my back to my optimistic self. Pollyanna, Pollyanna. So much, <laughs> I'm so much more comfortable again. I feel so much more comfortable. <laughs> well, we should also just we we should also just remember. So next year, so Kate Ellis has promised to go around and do a big uh, consultation road tour on uh, early childhoods. So we should make sure we keep an eye out for that as well. Yeah, yes, absolutely. I didn't know that. At the press club. We did a whole episode on it, Lisa. Oh, that was weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> so no details as yet, but that must be happening next year, you would assume. She said it would be happening, you know, during this, this term of Parliament. You wouldn't assume they want to leave it too long. Mm. Oh, sorry. I think I actually just yawned in the middle <laughs> of the book. You did. I heard that. That was terrible. Oh, it's all falling oh, apart. We've been it's doing this for too long. Yeah, it's the end of the year. I'm yes, so sorry. It wasn't because you were boring me. It was just the end of the year. I'm tired. All right, I'm gonna look. Stay professional for another few minutes, Lisa and Leah. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get through this. So we're going to move on to our Q&A session. I think the way we're going to do this is I'll I'll read the question, say who it is, and we let's try and give some pretty short and sharp answers, maybe each, if that sounds better, if that sounds all right. Okay. Yep. No pressure. We can think for them. We can think (laughs) for the questions. (laughs) All right. So I want to thank everyone. I'll I'll read our first names as they come through, but I want to thank everyone who sent us a question. We really um, appreciate it. And if um, we will leave the question and answer sort of form uh, that I put together uh, opened because we might do, you know, another Q&A mid next year or something. So if there are specific questions, you know, always get in touch with us, send us through. But we will start with Anne who asks, what is the future of preschool in early education? Are we being phased out by the government? Um, she gives them sort of other stats and, um, and asks quite a long time, but she's, uh, she sort of said, you know, the 15-hour-a-week um, 
has been challenging uh, due to having to offer extended hours, which many parents weren't seeking. So I think in general, she's just sort of asking, you know, what's in terms of preschools and fitting in with the early childhood sector, what do we think the position is? I reckon that this question is coming from New South Wales. (laughs) I would assume. um, because uh, for those of you who don't know um, what's happening in New South Wales is services are being asked to extend their hours um, from six-hour days to seven-and-a-half-hour days to make sure everyone gets 15 hours a week of education. I don't think that um, uh, they're being tried to be phased out by the New South Wales state government, but the New South Wales state government would really prefer it if the federal government paid for all preschool education rather than them. But I don't reckon the other states are going to let the New South Wales government get away with that. So, no, I don't think you're being phased out. Oh, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump in um, and that, see how positive you are right there? Um, Very succinct. So I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump in on the 15-hour-a-week research because I, I, this has always been a bit of a, um, a, a very sort of big conundrum for us to work out where this came from. I think that there was and a another, question on where... another questioner asked that, didn't they? That was so... Yeah. Where, where did that come from? Where did the 15 hours? So we might deal with it here because it... Is that all right, Liam? Sorry to... Yeah, go for it. Sorry so this to, question, so I might, I might it just sort of. Fit. Yeah, well, yeah, I might, go. I might ask the question specifically. So Sue gets her her moment in the sunshine. Thanks, Sue. So Sue asks, can oh. you explain where the fifteen hours required for preschool came from? It seems to be an odd number, as most preschools are six hour days. So fifteen hours is two and a half days, which is hard to administer and causes families problem. And I will say, being in the ACT, where the way they structure it is, you do two days one week and three days the one week. The, the next week is an is an absolute nightmare, and I can't believe they continue to do it that way. But over to you, Anne. Yes, sorry, I actually thought you'd combine those questions, so that was my fault for jumping ahead. Um, but uh, it was in- interesting because I was sort of looking back on this and trying to work out where where it started because we often talked about it. We often talked about where did this 15 hours come from? And it actually came from um, the UNICEF Innocenti uh, research body that puts out a whole lot of research on the you know, status of mothers and children and blah, 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 all of these different things. So just to be really quick about it, they developed the benchmarks around early childhood education internationally. And the benchmark, this is benchmark number 10, was at least 80% of 40, of four-year-old children, sorry, Liam, 40-year-old children, I was nearly referring to you there, (laughs) four-year-old children participate in publicly subsidised and accredited early childhood, early education services for at least 15 hours a week. Now, this was only produced in 2008 and we did have a lot of stuff that came, this was sort of almost in place by that time, but it was a, it, it was all brought together at that time. So that's where, where it originally came from. And the evidence for this, this is what I found most astounding when I was looking at this today, was that the evidence for the 15 hours was because firstly, children were ready for a school readiness cycle. Secondly, parents in most countries um, valued socialising and also um, thirdly it was just about time for mums to go back to work I'm not kidding you that is actually <laughs> what the evidence was so I, I think it'd be good to put the link up with um, this week's show too Liam so I'll, I'll give that to you but yeah. that is where the benchmark came from and by having this benchmark and by everybody adhering to this benchmark we could then see whether four-year-olds were actually accessing, whereas it was very difficult to get three-year-olds 
um, get that evidence around three-year-olds. So it, it's it's really fascinating this because it's actually kind of where policy's been developed in a very bumpy process that isn't hmm. actually, like the integrity of it is not that great. Certainly the evidence is there, but when it all came together, it was kind of like, yep, that will be a good thing to measure. So let's go for that. So that's wow. where the 15 hours came from. Yeah. But Leanne, it came in 2007 because it was part of Kevin O'Seven's policy. He said that um, all Australian four-year-olds will have enshrined in a new Commonwealth Early Childhood Education Act a universal right to access early play-based learning and development programs delivered by degree-qualified teachers. These programs will be funded for 15 hours per week. Yes, and I actually knew you were going to say that. So <laughs> that was exactly what I was trying to head off at the past just a couple of minutes oh. ago when I said all of this yeah, was, I heard that. Document, <laughs> was documented here, but the benchmarks were all lining up at that time. And that was, yeah, but that was like... The reason I had to say that is because I'm sure you were in that meeting with I, that I was in as well where... A whole bunch of people asked the National um, uh, Department of Education people, you know, where did the 15 hours come from? And they put up that research that you've suggested and we went, great, but that post-dates the policy. That's right. And they went, oh. Exactly. (laughs) And if they had have actually framed it up a little bit better, they would have been able to say this was where all of the benchmarks were then lined up and and were sort of combined to give this international perspective. The 15 hours was there before, but this was kind of bringing it all together into one beautiful benchmark for the for international, um, really for international data gathering, basically. Wow. Oh, I'm glad you knew Fair that enough. one, Leanne. I had no idea. So I'm glad some of you were able to very, very clearly answer that. That was oh, great. I, I knew there was a reason clear, we have you on the show. Yeah, but oh, thank you, Liam. Just one <laughs> I thought it was my witty optimism. Okay, fair enough. All right. Oh, the only other thing I'll add because it's a reason why we've got you on the show, and that's to answer this next question. Oh well, I was going to say quickly before we go to the next one uh, that the only other thing to think about in terms of preschools is that the national partnership agreement, so the national agreement between the state uh, and the federal government about the funding for preschools, will again be up at the end of 2017. The government really likes to leave this one to the last minute, and they they hate renewing uh, national partnership agreements. So this will be another fight to have at the end of 2017, which will be, I would imagine. They will leave it to the last minute, extend it for one or two years at the most, and we'll then have that fight again for the next one, even every two years for until the end of time, no doubt, and or until there's a progressive government in place. Um, yes, the next question. Well, this one is specifically directed at me, unfortunately, but I do want your views as well. Uh, but this is from uh, listener Emily, who says, "What issues, challenges have you, Liam, as a male, faced in the sector? What, aside from pay, do you think can be done?" to encourage greater male representation in the sector. So, Emily, thank you very much for your question. I'm going to do my best to not be too horrible answering it. I actually, and anyone who knows me well, I actually, I, I really don't like discussing the issues men face in the sector because for a couple of very brief reasons, I will say that the that the my experience has generally been very positive. I've been very lucky to have worked with particularly leaders uh, and all the women who were very uh, positive, supportive and didn't, um, you know, allow nonsense stuff like I don't want him working in that room or whatever. Um, I also just as 
and I, I remember I said this at a panel on men in the sector last year, which is part of the reason that how I how I performed in that panel is the reason I will never be invited to another panel again, certainly on men being in the sector, is I just fundamentally disagree with how, because of how particularly myself as a straight white man is positioned in the rest of society as one of the most powerful people around, I have very little time to sit around with groups of men complaining about how bad things are. I just, I can't stand it. It literally makes my skin crawl. And I know you're about to leap in, Lisa, Yay, Lisa and just get, just give me, just, <laughs> just give me, just give me a little bit sec. But, and I do actually think that the, it's, it's good for men. And I don't think I'd be the same person I am today. It's actually good for men to get a tiny, tiny view of what it's like for, for everyone else in the world who's not a straight white man to actually be a little bit of the odd one out and potentially be in a bit of a minority. I think it makes you um, have a stronger focus on social justice. I think it gives you some tiny, tiny... And again, only while you're at work. As soon as I leave the door for the day, I'm back in the majority and back basically running the world. Um, and in, so in terms of when you're saying, Emily, aside from pay, what do I think could be done to encourage greater male representation? I actually don't want specific stuff that encourages greater male representation because the reason there are so few men in the sector is because the sector is feminised, it's gendered, and the role of women in those in, in the sector is put down so much. So the way we... If, if you see low male participation as a problem, which I think it is, but it's only a problem in the sense of what it says about the women in the sector, that their roles aren't valued and the work that they do as early childhood teachers is not seen as important enough in society to warrant men uh, lowering themselves to doing it is improving the which is this is a very hard answer because it's not something that we can click our fingers and do but it's improving the position of the sector it's valuing early childhood teachers regardless of their gender and it is paying them appropriately yeah and breath nice yeah beautiful i won't even add anything to that i think no, that was i don't a want beautiful to add anything to that that, cool. was, that was great, Liam. Yeah. I heard that was okay, Emily. She I'm sorry. That's a legitimate well, question. She would train well, I think he's, yeah. he's a natural, Lisa. He's a natural. And, I, and look, and I think the only other thing I will now add, because I do that book, I've gone on my rant. Hang on. But, <laughs> I know there's one more thing, is that I want to be really clear for men in the sector, and I know there's probably maybe one or two listening, but particularly the ones that take part in some of the groups that are set up to support men, go for it. I, I wouldn't join one and I wouldn't be interested in sitting around talking about my experience as a man in the sector, but that's entirely my opinion. I don't think they're bad things and there are some fantastic people doing work in that space. If that's going to help you to talk about it, do it. It's not my thing and I hope I haven't yeah, made everyone, anyone feel bad about you know taking part of that kind of stuff. If, that, if, that, if that's what helps you do your work as a teacher and educator, go for it. Not my thing though. Ooh, yeah. Cool. All right. Ooh, all right. So, and then Emily's asked a second question, which hopefully will have a less... Uh, d- d- I don't know, ridiculous answer. Um, what are your thoughts on the structure of long daycare opening hours? Is 6am to 6pm in the best interest of children and educators? In the future, will we have separate services as seen in schools and some kindergartens, official teaching 9 to 3 with um, outside of school hours care available separately? That's a really interesting question. So it, I'll just start by saying 6am to 6pm is really uncommon in the ACT where I'm based, but is that more common in New South Wales, Leanne and Lisa? Uh, more 6.30, 7am to 6pm, although there are some 6am to 6pms, yeah. Mm. Do you know, in, in all my time in, in long daycare, I never saw a family use 
that, and I'm sure that people will say, you know, this, this is happening more, but I never saw a family use the hours from opening to close, which they can't. But, you know, I never saw anybody trying to push those limits on that, which I think is is interesting because it, it's the availability was not necessarily used. Yeah, but it's also because they only get 50 hours a week. Um, yes, I know, I know. But what I'm saying is, that's what I said, they couldn't. But in actual fact, I didn't see anybody try to push push that yeah, or even yeah. push it to, to the maximum, which I, when you live in Sydney, you've got to push things to the maximum because of the traffic and the, you know, everything really and the, where, where your centre is located and all of that sort of stuff. So that's not an answer, but I'm just saying that's what I observed. I think that there is no doubt that that those hours are not in the best interests of children. And when you see children that have had very long days for quite a few days, you see the strain it puts on those children. So I don't think it is, but I think that we live in a society where unless we radically reorganise how we're doing things, um, some parents will need extended hours of care. I don't think how it affects educators is is as, as important because many people work shift work and early education and care is just one of those industries. But I do think that, you know, I... I always feel a pang when I see children being pushed in um, uh, strollers up the street having been picked up at their childcare centre at 6 and it's now 6.30. They're still being pushed in a stroller in the middle of winter. In summer it's a whole different ball game, but in winter when it's dark and cold and wet, my heart just goes, oh, yeah, that they, poor but child. You can't, make, you can't make assumptions about what time that child started or the arrangements that are in place or how many days a week. or. All, oh, all no, I'm not. I'm just saying, you know, that I just think that, you know, long hours and young children don't work great. Yeah, I, well, and I agree. And I guess the thing that I would say is that it's – it's not just about long daycare centres. It's about the whole community, really, the work community, the um, the family community, the extended community, really coming together to um, to actually support that child having hours that are probably more appropriate for them. You mean having a child friendly society, Leanne? You radical? Huh? Going yeah, crazy. I, yeah, I think I might. Um probably even go a little bit further than both of you. I'm probably actually with Emily on this one is that we need a pretty significant structural change to how that's done. I don't think we're going to get anywhere in our advocacy as long as uh, the fundamental part of what we do is that the structure of what we do, our opening hours, is structured around workforce flexibility. So the only reason long day care centres are open these hours is to encourage workforce participation. Schools aren't open 9 till 3. They're, they're structured as educational... Sorry, schools aren't open all day. They are structured as educational facilities and they are open for the time that it is determined that children should be in there I, I, I don't have a solution for this this would be a radical change to society and I'm going to completely own up and say I don't know how you would go about changing that but I probably am a bit of an anarchist and would say yeah I actually think early childhood centres should probably be open something around nine to three and we sort out the flexibility of workforce participation care in some other way Ooh. sort that out everyone well, some yeah. varying views on that one, hey? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I think if, uh, yeah. particularly if there are centres open from six to six, that that is a workforce participation place. Like, uh, there's, there's no other way of getting around that. We're not going to make changes if that's the expectation. But oh, look, we, we could talk for a long time on this one, but I think it because the centre is open six till six doesn't necessarily reflect the working hours of families or um, the way that people manage their working lives. But, well, it does, obviously. Sorry, that's a stupid thing yeah. to say. <laughs> But I guess what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, the, that would, it's about the work patterns. I mean, we've been through all of these various trials about flexible care and all of those sorts of things, and people don't, don't use the, the flexible care to the way that we think that they might, which is for a really much longer span of hours of work. So some of these six to six do work, but people don't use them, obviously, for that number of hours. Well, this was the big thing. Remember the big flexibility trials that they did for ages and mm. ages? That a, no yeah. one took them up because it was this, it was this, it was not a myth. There are, of course, there are for shift workers and for a certain amount of people, this is tricky and I completely understand and accept that. But the early childhood education sector is not the place to solve that. Come up with other policy, other policy situations and solutions that will solve that specific issue, but don't stretch and flex an already very stretched and flexed sector that is trying to position itself as education to fix what is a completely different issue yeah yep. is my view yeah. um we might so the last two questions are kind of quite similar so i feel a bit sorry for them but we might combine them into one question so i'll ask them back to back and we can um we can go after them so uh we'll hear from katia first so she asks when will ece teachers be paid as they deserve as primary school teachers at least and i like you put there at least katia because i think they deserve more um and brigitte and we should probably own up that we all know brigitte and that's great to hear from her uh will a government ever fund uh, fair wage subsidies for early childhood teachers and educators so we're gonna to have to put on a pretty optimistic hat if any of us are going for a yes there but um what do you guys reckon so this is obviously just in, in general will there be pay parity for early childhood teachers and um and i would include educators in there as well with uh with other educational sectors well i'll, I'll do a quick answer to this i would hope that um early childhood teachers are paid as that as they deserve very soon and maybe that will be 2020 just like the three to five is going <laughs> to having free preschool Will a government ever fund fair wage subsidies? No, I don't believe that a government will ever directly fund fair wage subsidies. I think um, that the only way that it would ever happen is through some sort of operational funding that wasn't identified as being funded directly for fair wage subsidies. So no, I, I don't, unfortunately, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that will happen directly. Mm, I'm not so... Like there is a model of that happening already with the um, the Shads Award. Yeah, the, I was going to bring this up. Yeah, yeah, and so you know when they um, were awarded pay parity, all the states agreed to increase funding to those services to enable them to pay it, and it's happened over an eight-year period. But those um, workers, these are care workers, have gotten those increases in their pay. Do I don't. I think it's going to take two things, right? And the first one is it's going to take a much greater... Oh, I just said two things, didn't I? It's going to... Shut up, both of you. It's going to take a much greater um, level of ad, advocacy by the sector on behalf of themselves. So early childhood teachers have got to start demanding it and so do um, other educators. So... 
you know, when the sector starts advocating for it more, then it might happen. And the second thing is when society starts valuing children more, when Australia starts valuing children more, then it'll start valuing those that care for them and educate them more. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think that's basically my answer would be yes with a lot of ifs. So a lot, lot, kind of thing, a lot of things would have to line up, and I think some of them are. So the political move towards the the, the growing international and national recognition of the importance of early childhood education, um, but it's going to create, yeah, the, bluntly, the sector advocacy needs to be far better on this. The sector isn't united. It isn't, you know, putting together a coherent message. You know, you know, the union membership is low, um, but the but it. It could have. There's nothing. There's not. There's nothing in him. He goes, no, this will never ever happen. But there's a lot of ifs. A lot of things would need to line up, and that's going to be tricky. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, the the end of our inaugural Q and A episode. Uh, that was you know quite quite fun. I hope we enjoyed that. So, like I said, keep sending us the questions. We'd be happy to do another one down the track. Um, if there's any we've got opinions on everything, don't we? We do. We just took with confidence in if we don't know the answer. But luckily, we've got Leanne, who seems to know all the answers to all the specific questions that we get, which is wonderful. <laughs> That's fantastic. So uh, what we'll do is we will now uh, take a little quick break and we'll be back with our recommendations and our, our, our final wrap-up for the year. So stick with us. We'll be back in a sec. All right, we're back and we're going to give you our final recommendations for the year. So we will turn to Leanne. I'm going to go with you first. What are you, what are you bringing to us? Okay, well, um, I did want to finish the year on a conversation article. Of course you did. Of course you And this one, I, I guess because it sort of follows on a little bit from our PISA discussion, but it's uh, talking about NAPLAN results reveal little change in literacy and numeracy performance. Here are some key takeaway findings. And look, I won't talk too much about it because it's an interesting read about how things haven't changed. And I think... My challenge to people who are listening is think critically about this article and why you think these improvements haven't been made. Um, because we all don't love NAPLAN. It's not something that we think is the be all and end all, but it is an indicator. But it's when you look deeper into the NAPLAN results and look at where uh, people are living in disadvantaged communities and um, looking at the um, parents' education and those sorts of things. And I guess my point is that the best way to make the difference there is to provide high quality early childhood education for free to the whole of Australia and then we wouldn't have to worry about these NAPLAN results because they'd just be, you know, off the scale. Hmm. Hopefully we can sort that out by as, 2020 as for you, Leanne. It's provided by well-paid educators with great ratios yeah, and great qualifications. Yeah, yeah, all of those components. Quite, You're right, quite seriously, it is that because it is actually paying attention to the detail around the quality of that early childhood education. You can't just kind of throw it out there and go, this will do. <laughs> but it's not really just, I guess I'm just not saying it's about this impact on the NAPLAN results. It's the ongoing impact on families, on their education, on communities and advantage and disadvantage. So I, I think, you know, it really kind of says it all. But I, I, I just urge everybody to think critically on this one and consider what the reasons are for those NAPLAN results. Mm. Thanks, Leanne. What are you? What are you bringing for us, Lisa? 
Look, um, I'm bringing an article which was written by an educator and was published in quite a few publications today. And I have to, before I go into it, I have to congratulate United Voice for getting these articles, opinion pieces into the paper. As, as we know that, or as I know, that's a very hard thing to do. So good on them for getting them in. And good on this educator, Joanne Marshall, for putting the words together and getting it published. That said, I want to say this sort of article drives me insane. Um, It's called Childcare, Not Child's Play, and it's an educator's take on why they should be paid more money. And I'll just read you a few few quick paragraphs of it so that you see, you get to hear it before you hear what I hate about it. It starts off, if you've ever thought looking after a toddler on a bad day is hard, try 11 of them in one room. Now add teething, screaming, vicious biting, scratching out eyes, inconsolable crying and poo, so much stinky stranger poo. And it goes on in that kind of vein. And basically what the article does to me and why I want people to read it and why I want people to stop using this kind of narrative for advocacy is it is a whole article about how crap the job is, how hard the job is, how annoying children is. Parents, they just get, you know, um, dumped on throughout the whole article. And I just don't think that's the way that you go about getting pay rises by saying how bad the job is. We know that there are many elements of the job that are bad, but I don't think that's the way to get a pay rise. And I also think that if you feel that bad about your job, maybe, you know, it's time to look at other jobs. One of, um, uh, you know, the things that this um, particular educator complains about is the amount of documentation that they have to do. Um, She says uh, they've got to do an hour's reflection each day on individual children. They've got to do three documented learning stories for each child per month. Um, she has 23 children on my roll. She's got to do a daily reflection and a six-page critical reflection and an individual weekly planner for each child. And I just reckon if you're doing that much documentation, there's your problem right there. You, sh- you don't have to do that much documentation. No law, as Liam often says, no, the NQS doesn't demand it. So I think it's a negative way at looking at at what we're doing, and I think there's better ways of presenting our need for pay increases. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't want to, yeah, like you said, Lisa, I don't want to pile on this this person, you know, good on them for, for getting this stuff out there. I, yeah, and I, I, yeah, I agree, it, absolutely. I agree, but I think we have to we have to have this discussion because I agree it, it puts the sector in a really bad light. That it, it's refer, she refers to herself as a childcare worker. She doesn't have a control over the headline, but it's it's in the article. She says she's a childcare worker. Don't call yourself a childcare worker and ask for pay equity because you're not going to get it. All right, well, I might bring you mine now, which is um, it's kind of uh, following on from that. Uh, investing in early childhood uh, discussion. So mine's from the US and it's from NPR, which is the, the public uh, radio station in the US. And, and it's an article about a new bit of research from our good friend Heckman of the Heckman Equation fame, who has talked about the benefits of um, early childhood education, um, particularly to the economy and to reinvestment into, um, you know, uh, diverting away from uh, 
correctional institutions and those kind of things. So basically how much a society saves by investing in preschool. And um, he's recently released another report that's getting a fair bit of media, but the NPR article has a, um, a good interview with him and talking about how, you know, this is... Um, such an obvious investment to make and and since you know, I talk with a lot of people who and I think um it's probably okay to call her out but I Eva Cox who you know is one of the you know the rock stars of early childhood advocacy I think she she sort of publicly said a few times she regrets making the economic argument I think a lot in the 80s because it shifted it shifted from education to uh, sort of workforce participation I've always said she's far too hard on herself for that she needs to she needs to um, stop whacking herself over the head for that because this this has to be part of it and if we particularly look in the US where we now have an insane businessman in charge of the entire country we we're going to have to respond and particularly in the US with given their their sector they're going to have to look at we need to make potentially more economic arguments about why this is the right thing to do so i think you know i'm I'm glad that heckman's still producing this research and still looking at the stuff the report uh, itself is is quite tricky and it's it's very it's very economic theory and uh, formula focus so i found it very hard to get through but the article itself is probably worth a look and just uh continuing that sort of stream of advocacy for me i think it's just something we've got to do whether we whether it makes us feel a little bit icky or not yeah Fair definitely enough. and and I'm sure, Liam, that you would recommend everybody at some stage tries to access NPR as well because it's a it's very interesting. I love video. NPR. I'm your typical lefty yes, hippie, and yeah. I love NPR. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I tweeted oh. it out premiere in New South Wales first thing this morning. <laughs> ah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I tweeted it out first, Lisa. Didn't you copy me? Oh, uh, did you? I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh, I didn't see your tweet. I'm sorry. We'll check the time codes later. Oh. <laughs> All right, well... You're so, you're so Twitter competitive, you two. I know. You? I know. We haven't detoxed yet like you, Leanne. We're, I don't think it's ever going to happen. All right. Well, that's been a long rambling episode. Thank you for sticking with us. We've 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 had a great time to both this episode and for the whole year. And as we said, this is our last episode, our last regular episode for the year. So we just want to, as, um, as always, just remind everyone, if you get a chance to rate and review us on the iTunes store, we'd be eternally grateful. Um, we will be back. We're taking uh, the rest of December and probably all of January off and hoping to be back probably in the first week of February. Um, as I said last week, the, the NQF review may possibly be announced at, at COAG next week and there may be some pretty significant announcements about what changes to the National Quality Framework may be in. I think we sort of said, look, if that does happen, we will try and record a quick bonus episode before February because we think it's important to, to get initial thoughts on that. But, um, but no promises. That'll just depend on availability and whether it's actually announced or not. But, yeah, otherwise we'll be back with a full episode uh, next year. I, I mean, it's been it's been great fun, particularly talking with the two of you. It's been wonderful to talk early yeah. childhood last little while. And, and oh, hats, off, hats off to Liam for um, editing us as well. Yeah, he does the hard he, stuff. Yeah, he does the really hard stuff. So we have to we have to thank him. Oh, thank you. And, and thank yes, you. big thanks to you too. Thank you. Mm, wonderful. Uh, now, before we get too nice to each other, we never want to get too far down that path. But um, we obviously you keep staying in touch with us over the break. You can find the show um, at Early Edgy Show on both Facebook and Twitter. Um, you know, always give us a like or a follow. It makes us feel very happy. Um, and, and tweet us or, or leave a comment on Facebook. Um, you can also... Uh, find us individually uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Liam McNicholas. And me at Lisa J. Bryant. And me at Leanne M. Gibbs 3. So until 
next year until 2017 thank you so much for staying with us over the last uh, 16 episodes we are looking forward to coming back but until then it's bye and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from me and from me or whatever other religion you follow (laughs) and yes and from me best wishes for a very calm and peaceful time over December and January and God, that see sounds you all in boring. I want them to have a raging fun time. <laughs> Bye everyone. <laughs>